Good morning. My name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Nahum 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is a jealous and vengeful God. The Lord is vengeful and strong in wrath. The Lord is vengeful against his foes. He rages against his enemies. The Lord is very patient but great in power. The Lord punishes. His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 2, 2 through 5. We know that God's judgment agrees with the truth, and his judgment is against those who do these kinds of things. If you... If you judge those who do these kinds of things while you do the same things yourself, think about this. Do you believe that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you have contempt for the riches of God's generosity, tolerance, and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to change your heart and life? You are storing up wrath for yourself because of your stubbornness and your heart that refuses to change. God's just judgment will be revealed on the day of wrath. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 12, 33. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now this world's ruler will be thrown out. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to me. And he said this to show how he was going to die. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the way that you speak to us. We ask you now that as we listen to your word being proclaimed, that you would give us eyes and ears and hearts and minds that would see you, respond to you with everything within us, Lord. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. All right, you may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you, everyone joining us online. Thank you for that. We hope to see you in person soon enough. You are the smart people that come to the 11 a.m. The 9 was jam-packed, overflowing, yeah! which was awesome. But no, but you're, but you're clever. You've had brunch already, probably, you know, you're, you're, or maybe you're going out afterwards. I don't know. Um, it is, as we've been saying, the first Sunday in Lent, and it's actually... 46 days. Some of you math whizzes have already worked that out. If Easter's April 4th, you're like, wait a minute, why is there 46 days? It's because in kind of church tradition, whatever thing you are fasting during Lent on those Sundays in Lent, you can take a break from that fast. So the whole purpose of fasting, first of all, let's just say this, the whole purpose of fasting is to make room in your heart um, to seek the Lord. Uh, it's not to impress God, not to twist God's arm. It's not, to, it's not a starvation strike, a hunger strike, you know. Uh, this, is, this is a way to say, God, I just want to clear out some clutter so that I can engage with you. And there's some great resources Pastor Jason will, will mention at the end of the service. Because sometimes the point might be not just to clear away space, but actually to then lean in. Uh, to something intentional to, to, to lean in during Lent. So that's great. But I will say, if you're giving up, let's say coffee or chocolate, and why would you do that? But if you were, uh, if you were doing that, um, you, you, you certainly can know that Sundays are a great 
day to make you think about Easter, and so you can enjoy the very thing that you've been giving up. Isn't that good news? We're just full of good news today. I know a lot of us are like, haven't we been in Lent for a year already? Like, it wasn't all of 2020 Lent? Yeah, basically. Uh, we are in a series called Everyday Prophets, and um, this is a, we've been in it for a few weeks, but it is kind of a perfect turn as we put the focus a little bit more in this season of Lent of preparation and, and humility and repentance and seeking the Lord. The prophets, that's their end goal. They're, they're trying to call uh, people back to the Lord or to the Lord for the very first time. And so this is a series through what's sometimes called the minor prophets. It's these 12 shorter prophet books near the end of the Old Testament, uh, at the end of the Old Testament, that actually really do belong together. Uh, I don't know how many Marvel fans there are in the room. Any Marvel fans in the room? Uh, it, those who are attuned to it will know that Captain America is called the first Avenger. And uh, it, it, to the uninitiated, if you want to know where do I start, well, if you want to you know, get a comprehensive view of the whole Marvel universe, maybe you start with the Iron Man movies or at least the first one. But if you want to say, but what's the origin story of the Avengers themselves, you go back to Captain America because he is the first Avenger. Very good. And in that movie, there is the scene where young Steve Rogers, he's this scrawny kid, uh, a lot like how I looked in, in high school and uh, college. And... Um, <laughs> I've caught up since then, but uh, young Steve Rogers was kind of picked on, was bullied, and they choose him for the special program, the army, to do this, this, you know, perform this thing on him that will make him really bulk up um, in a good way, bulk up. And so there's this conversation with the scientist where the scientist says to him, "Do you want to kill Nazis?" And Rogers says, "Is this a test?" And the scientist says, "Yes." And Rogers replies, "I don't want to kill anyone." I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. And you understand that the reason there are Avengers is because there are bullies. And it actually speaks to a very human longing in us to say, listen, I'm not looking to be mean to anyone, but I don't like when other people are being pushed around. And actually, when we, when we feel that, what we want to know is, and does God feel that way too? Or is God sort of passive, indifferent, distant, uninvolved? Is God only concerned about quote-unquote spiritual things? Or does God care about justice and injustice in the world? Does God like bullies? Will God tolerate bullies? And the flip side of this question, not only why does God allow evil, it seems like he allows evil, but the other side of the coin of that question is, and why does God not seem to reward the faithful? So there are people who seem to be faithful and are doing things right. And you think, well, why does God not seem to reward them? And even worse, in the other side of the coin, why does he seem to tolerate or put up with evil? Will God do something about this? Our book that we're studying today is the book of Nahum. And so in this series, we've taken one prophet and kind of done just a sermon just on that one prophet. And it, it works really well when the book is short, like this one, the book of Nahum. It's a little bit, been a bit challenging when the book's a bit longer. But today's theme for the book of Nahum is God, the ultimate avenger. God, the ultimate avenger. And this time period that Nahum is prophesying in is about a hundred years or so after Jonah. So you remember a couple weeks ago I said Jonah was called to the Ninevites and he was called to give this message of warning to them. And then when they repented and God relented, Jonah got resentful. 
God warned them. They repented. God relented. Jonah resented. (laughs) I'm flowing, flowing. And you wonder, you're like, so is this the end of the story? No. Nahum is the continuation of the story because they don't keep up with their repentance. And during this time period, not only is Assyria sort of back to their evil ways, but you have now the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. They watched their cousins up to the north get slaughtered by the Assyrians. They watched them be dragged away and tortured horrifically. And they're down here in Judah and they're like, God, are you going to do anything about that? And there was, likely, this is the time period of a young king in Judah named Josiah. And if you have any kind of, you know, vague recollection of this from Sunday school, if you had Sunday school as part of your story, uh, you might remember that Josiah was a king who tried to bring about reforms. And he would turn people back to the Lord. So imagine you're in Judah. You've just seen horrific things happen to your cousins up north. And you're wondering why God's not doing anything about it. In the meanwhile, you're kind of getting your act back together and you're seeking the Lord. And you're like, okay, God, we're trying to be faithful. They're totally evil. What do you have to say about that? And that is what the book of Nahum addresses. So Nahum 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, An oracle about Nineveh, the scroll containing the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and vengeful God. The Lord is vengeful and strong in wrath. The Lord is vengeful against his foes. He rages against his enemies. Right out of the gates, Nahum introduces us to a God who is vengeful and jealous. A God who will rage against his enemies. Then in verse 3, the Lord is very patient but great in power. The Lord punishes. I want to pause right here and say this. The patience of God does not mean that you will never have to deal with the punishment of God. Sometimes we imagine that because God is patient, we think God is passive. Oh, he's so patient, he's he's allowing, and the New Testament says he's not slow as some think. He just doesn't want any to perish, and sometimes we're like, okay, but does God's patience actually mean that God is passive or indifferent? Nahum says no. Nahum says, no, he will deal with this. And furthermore, it's important for us to recognize that God understands with repeat offenders that there can be a point when enough is enough. Over the years in pastoral ministry, sometimes people will come and they'll say, this is what I'm experiencing in my marriage or in my home and it's situations of abuse and do I have to put up with this and is forgiveness does forgiveness mean that I just sort of forgive and carry on and Nahum says emphatically no you don't keep yourself in situations of abuse you don't keep yourself in situations of harm that being forgiving or being patient does not mean you put yourself in positions where you are continually mistreated and abused doesn't mean that And God himself says enough is enough. God himself says your repentance was all a show. And sometimes this has happened in people's situations. You know the stories where the the pain is dramatic, so the apology is equally dramatic. Oh, I'll never do this again. And God says to Nineveh, enough, 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 enough of that. I don't need dramatic tears and repentance. I need to remove you from the, the equation. That's a serious thing to say. 
But as we look at this text, it makes us think, and then it goes on. It's the latter part of verse 3. It says, his way is in the whirlwind and storm. Clouds are the dust of his feet. This is an interesting part of the story because so far in the prophet books, the prophets have mostly been addressing the people of God for the most part. Hosea's talking to Samaria. Joel's talking to... All of them are talking... Even when you get to Obadiah, he's talking to the Edomites. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. Esau and Jacob are brothers. And throughout that short little prophet book of Obadiah, God refers to the Edomites and, and the people of Judah as your brother. So even then, it's so far, it's been mostly a family affair. But now, just like it was with Jonah, now with Nahum, he's addressing another nation. Why does God have the right to do this? See, this, for us, we're thinking, well, of course he has the right. He's the sovereign. But in the ancient world, they believed that gods were regional. Different people and different places had their own deities. And so if you were over here, you were in the jurisdiction of the God of the Babylonians. And if you were here, you were under the jurisdiction of this other God. And you couldn't make your appeal to a different God if you were in the wrong region or if you were of the wrong race. But here, the God of Israel is saying, I'm the God who rides the clouds. I'm the God who's the heavens are the very dust of my feet. I'm the sovereign over all. The God of Israel says, I'm not a little regional deity. Our version of that as Christians is to imagine that Jesus and our faith in Jesus is a little private, personal faith. We live in a pluralistic society where many religions are trying to get along and figure out how we work together for the common good. And all of that is is good as far as it goes. But as Christians, we should never fool ourselves into thinking that our faith is simply a matter of private devotion. As Christians, it's not simply a matter of saying, well, you know, I've got my little beliefs and you can have your truth and I'll have my truth and this is my... As Christians, we understand that the gospel is not that Jesus is our little private personal Lord and Savior. The gospel is an announcement that Jesus is the true sovereign of the world. He's the king over all. And of course, look, look I, I, that doesn't mean we impose Christian morality and the laws. That's a complicated thing about what it means, how to work that out in the public square. But we have to understand that the claims we're making about Jesus are not just for an interior life. They're for the affairs of the whole world. As the British missionary to India said, the gospel, Leslie Newbegin, he said, the gospel is a public truth. It's a public truth. It's for all. And it's an announcement that deals with all. That's what Nahum is saying even in the Old Testament. Because God rides with the clouds as the dust of his feet, God has the right to rebuke the nations. God has the right to deal with wickedness wherever he finds it. So I want us this morning to look at the vengeance of God and to explore three things that we learn about the vengeance of God from the book of Nahum. Are you ready? Buckle up. Number one, God's vengeance flows out of his goodness. God's vengeance flows out of his goodness. Nahum 1, verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good. It's interesting. Verse 2, he starts out with the Lord is a jealous and vengeful God. And now verse 7, the Lord is good. A haven in a day of distress. He acknowledges those who take refuge in him. You're like, yeah, that does sound good. Then you get to verse 8. With the rushing flood, he will utterly destroy her place and pursue his enemies into darkness. God's vengeance flows out of his goodness. 
The way we think about this sometimes is we think that these things are set in tension with one another. And so we're like, well, he, verse 2, he's a vengeful God. Verse 7, he's a good God. And so we're like, well, these things are just kind of in, 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 in opposition but in tension. And we have in our mind this, the, vision, the visual of a seesaw. And you're like, God today, oh, good God. Love this God. Then you're like, oh, vengeful God. Oh, boy. And you're unsure, and it's the seesaw God of which one is he going to be today. If anyone here or listening online grew up with alcoholic parents or an alcoholic parent, you understand the confusing effect on a child not knowing, is it good dad or bad dad today? Is it angry parent or spoiling parent? Absent parent, present parent. And sometimes we bring that lens into our own picture of God. And we wonder, is, is God good God or is God vengeful God? And like, I don't know which is it going to be. As if God struggles with multiple personality disorder. Or as the atheist critic Richard Dawkins said, the Old Testament God is capricious. You never know which he's going to be. Is that what the Old Testament reveals? The truth is for Nahum... God's goodness and God's vengeance are not set in tension with one another, but rather the vengeance is set in context of his goodness. They're not related like a seesaw, but maybe if you'd allow this metaphor, like a slingshot. The sling is his goodness and the momentum is his goodness. This is always who he is. And because he is good, boom, out of it springs vengeance. The dealing with evil, the action to deal with wickedness. Out of that, it's his goodness that propels him, compels him to deal with wickedness and evil. Some of our dearest friends we've known for about 25 years, Jeremiah and Nikki Parks, they, um, they, they live half the year in Guatemala and they go three months there, three months back, three months there, three months back and they have um, three young kids of their own and, and they live in a community, a campus where... There are children that have been rescued from difficult homes. Some of them are orphans. Some of them the equivalent of what maybe we would think of as a a foster system of sorts. And then there are widows around the community and older women that come and help and care for the kids. And Jeremiah and Nikki and family live on this campus with them. They're back for a, a little while and we were having dinner the other night and over the last you know, couple of years, they've been able to build a relationship and they, they're teaching at the school and they're doing Bible classes and all of the stuff with the kids. And he said there's one particular a girl in the community who has began to open up to him. and he, She shared with him the story of the horrific treatment that she endured as a child. And Jeremiah said, I, I, I didn't know what to do with this rage that I felt. I felt so angry that anyone would do this to a child. And he he had a conversation with another friend uh, who leads a ministry that many of you are familiar with called Exodus Road that deals with rescuing trafficking victims. And the two of them were relating on this, that when you hear these stories, you feel a kind of anger to say, I want, someone has to deal with this. That anger is not because you're not good. That anger is because, precisely because you are good. And you know what goodness is. 
If there's anyone here who's suffered difficulty and abuse, it's one step toward healing to recognize that it's not your fault. But it's another step toward healing to recognize that God is not indifferent about your suffering. God is not indifferent about your suffering. If anyone has endured that, you need to know that Nahum reveals a God who is not like, interesting, but a God who says, I'm mad about that. I hate that. I rage against the ones who destroyed you, who damaged you, who hurt you. God's vengeance flows out of his goodness. Please understand that you don't have to do theological gymnastics and convince yourself that maybe what I experienced was good because God is bringing good out of it. No. God, as a redeemer, will redeem all things. But that doesn't mean you have to call evil good. God, as the redeemer, will bring good out of everything. That's what he does. But that does not mean you have to call evil good. Nahum shows us a God who rages to pursue enemies into darkness because he is a refuge, because he is good. The second thing we see from Nahum is that God's vengeance is just. It's just. God has the, is the only one who can deal with this in a way that is perfectly just. In fact, you see a number of Poetic phrases here in Nahum. Nahum 2 verse 1. A scatterer has come up against you. Guard the ramparts. Watch the road. Protect your groin. Save your strength. You're like, well, you just looked up all of a sudden. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Nahum 3, 18 through 19. Your shepherds have fallen asleep. King of Assyria, your officials are lying down. Your people are scattered. Why all this emphasis on scattered? Because that's what the Assyrians would do. The Assyrians would not simply conquer a people. They were the first ancient empire to have a standing army, but standing army makes it sound nice. They were a standing group of terrorists who would go and conquer a group of people and then scatter them and torture them and make it so that that civilization would never regroup again. They were known for being scatterers. And God says, you want to scatter? I'll scatter you. God's vengeance is just because he makes sure that what has been sown will be reaped. God's vengeance is just. But then thirdly, God's vengeance is personal. These are some stunning verses in Nahum. Sometimes you read about the judgment of God and it's God just warning it, you know, all this stuff. Even when Jonah warned the Ninevites, it just seemed like an announcement that you have a few days But now the language turns to be deeply personal. Nahum 2 verse 13. Look, I am against you, proclaims the Lord of heavenly forces. I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. The voice of your messengers will never be heard. And then chapter 3 verse 5. Look, I am against you, proclaims the Lord of heavenly forces. It's quite a thing for God to say. Not just that Nineveh or Assyria, what you're doing is wrong, but I take it personally. I love this. See, God is not, again, I've said this over and over again, God is not a cold calculating sort of computer program in the sky that calculates and weighs out the balance of good and evil and who's right and who's wrong. This is God who is personally taking up the cause of the oppressed. 
This is God who is personally saying, I am against you to the Assyrians. You should not have done that. You should not have awoken the sleeping giants. I think about that documentary probably many of you watched last summer. Documentary or propaganda depending on your views of who the greatest basketball player of all time really is. If you think it's LeBron, this was propaganda. If you think it's MJ, you're like, it was the greatest documentary ever. But if you watch The Last Dance, one of the great insights into Michael Jordan's psyche is how he took everything personally. Like he had to invent chips on his shoulder to be motivated. Not entirely emotionally healthy. It would not have failed. I would not have passed that course. But he found a way to take everything personally. So when someone talked trash or when someone said that they shut down Jordan, when Gary Payton said, oh, I made it so he didn't score that many points, he just laughed and said, yeah, right. Watch this. These great athletes have this thing where if you do anything that they begin to take personally, uh-oh, it's game over. You'll never win again. <laughs> I listened to this clip of the late Kobe Bryant. Oh, may he rest in peace. Kobe talked about George Carl when George Carl was the coach of the Sonics in Seattle and he was the coach of the Western All-Stars and Kobe was on the bench in the fourth quarter and he wanted to go head-to-head with Michael in this All-Star game, East versus West is how they do it. So it would have been, you know, a Kobe against Michael and George Carl wouldn't play him. And Kobe hated it. And he said, I made a vow in that moment that if I would never lose in the playoffs to a team coached by George Carl. Well, if you're a Nuggets fan, you know that George Carl became the coach of the Denver Nuggets, and we never beat Kobe's team. Never. (laughs) Be careful. Here, Nahum is saying, "Uh uh-oh, Ninevites, uh uh-oh, Assyrians, God himself is against you. But here's the thing. The The flip side of I am against you to the oppressor is I am for you to the oppressed. You see, Nahum's name means comfort. Why is this little prophetic book a book of comfort? Because when they heard God say, I'm against you to the Assyrians, what they really heard was, I am for you, for them. That's what they heard. I'm for you. I'll take up your cause. You see, it's because God will avenge us that we don't need to pursue vengeance for ourselves. When I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about that story from Corey Ten Boom and forgiveness for the concentration camp guard, the idea is not that God is saying forgive because it's all swept under the rug and God doesn't really care about who does what. No. We are free to forgive because we've turned the matter over to God. That's the idea. Parents in the room, if you have more than one child and if they are above the age of three, you'll be very familiar with the, the scene that occurs, at least in our home, every single day. It's not fair. He hit me. Well, she took my this, and I did not. And they go on and on, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. And there are times that we say, you know what, work it out. I got to do something else. But there are other times when the cry is so great that we say, okay, 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 okay. This is not okay, but will you leave it with me? Will you leave it with me? I will deal with it. 
No, I just want to. No, I just have to. This is what you have to do. It's not okay what they did. But will you leave it with me? This is what God says to us. You don't have to gloss over sins and wrongs and abuses. You, you don't have to say, oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. They didn't mean to. You don't have to gloss. But what God is saying is, will you leave it with me? Will you let me be your avenger? But when we click the lens of Scripture a couple clicks closer and we move from the Old Testament into the Gospels, we find something most surprising about Jesus. We find that in Jesus, God is not only the God of vengeance, but He becomes God the vanquished. He becomes not simply the God of vindication, but the God who became a victim. This is how deeply personal it actually became. That at the cross, Jesus suffered in solidarity with all victims. At the cross, Jesus suffered in solidarity with all victims. We don't have a God who only rides on the clouds. We have a God who died on the cross. A God who came to suffer in solidarity. He doesn't just boil with rage. He weeps with pain. He says, I know what that feels like. Christ himself was betrayed. Christ himself suffered. Christ himself was crucified. In the wake of post-World War II Germany, as they were trying to pick up the theological rubble around their country, because so much of the theology of victory and glory had led them to justify military might, Young theologians were trying to figure out, what have we missed about the gospel? And a young theologian named Jürgen Moltmann began to write about the crucified God. Not simply the victorious, not even simply the God of vengeance, but the suffering God. At the cross, Jesus suffered in solidarity with all victims, but it doesn't end there. At the cross, Jesus suffered... For the sin of the victimizer. We would like God to only take one side. But at the cross he dies for the offender. He dies for the one who is worthy of judgment. Jesus on the cross. One of his seven last sayings. And we'll hear it again in Good Friday. And in a few weeks. Is to say to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. I, I think thief was probably putting it lightly. <laughs> because you, they didn't use crucifixion for petty crimes. This person was probably someone who had brought a great deal of turbulence, something, disruption. And yet Jesus is able to say, today you will be with me in paradise. At the cross, Jesus suffered for the sin of the victimizer. But as we click the lens a little bit closer and maybe allow the light to be shown on us, we say with Nahum in Nahum 1 verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? 
It's one thing to be like, yeah, get him, God. Name can hardly deliver this word without also recognizing the fear of the Lord and saying, ah, oh, who can stand? Who can confront the heat of his fury? His wrath pours out like fire. The rocks are shattered because of him. Paul knows this. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul writes to this church in Rome about their conflict between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and each of them trying to prove that they had more of a claim to Christ than the other. And in Romans 2, Paul is focusing particularly on Jewish believers, and he says, we know that God's judgment agrees with the truth, and his judgment is against those who do these kinds of things. I imagine when people are listening to Phoebe reading this letter, maybe Phoebe paused at this point. Maybe she paused, and the church was like, amen. Amen. These people, those Gentiles, worthy of wrath. And then like a good preacher, maybe she read on and she said, if you judge those who do these kinds of things while you do the same things yourself, think about this. Do you believe that you will escape God's judgment? Got awful quiet in the church in Rome. Or do you have contempt for the riches of God's generosity, tolerance, and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to repentance? Or in this translation, to change your heart and your life. Imagine that phrase could have been said by Nahum to Nineveh, couldn't it? Don't you see that God's kindness through Jonah like a hundred years ago was supposed to lead you to actual repentance? Now Paul is applying it to the people of God and he's saying, if you think God's been kind to you, kindness is supposed to lead you to transformation. And he says, you're storing up wrath for yourself because of the stubbornness of your own heart and refuses to change. God's just judgment will be revealed on the day of wrath. So many times as Christians today in today's climate, we're like, oh, well, you know, Glenn, the world is just getting worse. and It's just getting more sinful out there. And I just can't believe what's happening. And our culture is so wicked. And man, one day it's a good thing we said in the creed that he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. And I want to say, don't talk to me about America. Talk to me about the church. How are we doing? Don't talk to me about how evil the world is. I want to know how the church is doing. That's what Paul builds to. And if it feels like it's bad news, it's bad news before it's good news in Romans. He builds up to Romans 3 where he then says, all have sinned. And then in Romans 5, he begins to give us the good news about Jesus and he says, we can be even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. Nahum said, who can stand? Paul says, we will be saved from wrath if we're in Christ. And he goes on in Romans 8 and he says, in Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation now to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 3, because God has done what was impossible for the law. Since it was weak because of selfishness, God condemned sin in the body of Christ Jesus, by sending his own son to deal with sin in the same body as humans who are controlled by sin. Here's what this means. At the cross, Jesus suffered the full weight of God's, God's vengeance. You say, well, God, you got to deal with evil. He said, I will. But how will you save sinners? Like, is it just going to be the whole scorched, the whole earth is scorched? Who can stand before your fire? 
He says, I will find a way to deal with evil and save sinners. How, Jesus? By taking the weight of God's judgment in my own body. This is why Paul can't help but exclaim, oh, the wisdom of God. How did you do that? How did you maintain the just and good vengeance and yet save all of us? He did it by taking the weight in himself. God judged sin in the body of Christ Jesus. Like the horcrux in Harry that had to be destroyed for Voldemort to die. Let the reader, let the listener understand. (laughs) As we come to the Lord's table today, we remember wherever you find yourself today. If you find yourself suffering and in pain, the cross speaks to you of Christ's solidarity with you. If you find yourself troubled by saying, but surely I have been the villain in someone else's story. Maybe I haven't been Nineveh, but I've done something. I've done, okay. And degrees do matter. Degrees do matter because of the degrees of devastation. It is different. Not everything is trauma. Not everything is abuse. But still, to some level, we could say, but haven't I been, haven't I wronged others? The cross speaks to you of God's salvation for you. And for all of us who tremble at the word of the Lord through Nahum and say, this God of justice and whose vengeance is itself good, who can stand? The cross speaks the good news to you today and says, in Christ, you can stand. Have you ever noticed that we pray our prayer of confession seated And we stand up after the words of forgiveness. It's a picture every week, a living embodiment, enactment every week to say, I don't stand because I'm awesome and God's going to get all those people. I stand because in Christ, Jesus took the full weight of God's vengeance. And now we know we are saved from the wrath to come. Would you bow your heads this morning?